0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive
0: Editor. This week, is Elon Musk heading for a clash with the British government over free speech?
1: Plus, is it ever okay to stare at someone?
0: And finally, is getting a fringe a cry for help? First up, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. But might the Tesla CEO be in for a battle he wasn't expecting with the British government? Spectator editor Fraser Nelson writes about this potential clash in this week's issue, and he joins us now. Fraser, in your piece this week, you start by writing about the online safety bill, which is currently going through Parliament, and you call it one of the most ambitious censorship laws that the world has ever seen. Since Elon Musk, who has just bought Twitter, calls himself a free speech fundamentalist, Do you see the potential for a future clash between Twitter and the
2: UK government? I think you can see the clash starting already. Only last night, Elon Musk put out a tweet saying that he would refuse to censor anything that wasn't illegal. Now, of course, the whole point of the government's so-called online safety bill is to create a new category of things it intends to censor, things that are legal to say but are, in the government's words, harmful. Now, that, of course, is very controversial. You could you would certainly argue, that I would, that nobody should be fined or penalized for saying anything which isn't illegal. Yet the government wants to create this new censorship code. And by the way, the first government in the world to attempt to do this. This is why I say it's the most ambitious. Well, the first uh, democratic, the democratic government. democratic yeah. yeah. I mean, God, was enough of this in China. But, the, um, but of course, we're actually following the Chinese model in that we are asking, it's going to be the social media companies here, as in Beijing, who are going to be required to do the censoring. So the government will go after the companies. So what's happening here, as in Beijing, if anybody tweets or posts on Facebook or posts on YouTube, something which the government regulator disapproves of is going to go after the companies is going to go after them hard to a maximum of 10% of their global revenue. Now, this is billions of dollars. The idea is to create a threat which is just so terrifying that the social media giants will, if in doubt, just censor. So anything that comes close to being controversial will simply disappear. Now, as an editor, I see this all the time. The Spectator has got a 190-year a, a history of coming up with minority arguments, uh, unusual original arguments that tend to go against the grain quite often we'll come up with things which defy the conventional wisdom, and that will now get picked up and flagged by some kind of computer system. So for example, we had Lionel Shriver reading out one of her columns on YouTube. Um, She was, uh, I think, criticising lockdown policy, and that's her column vanished from YouTube. We were told it violated community regulations. We weren't told what she'd said or how she'd said it. It was uh, rather draconian. It simply disappeared. It became an, an un, uncolumn. And that is the sort of system that we're up against. It's going to happen a lot more now because the, the social media companies will think, well, if we don't do this, and if the government might later regard this point we might make as being harmful, we're going to get a huge fine and we don't want that. Elon Musk is the only guy rich enough and crazy enough to run that risk.
1: But Fraser, do do you really think that Elon Musk does care enough about free speech to fight the presumably many battles that are going to come his way once he takes over Twitter?
2: Well he says he does, and he's also forked out $44 billion buying Twitter. And he's done so because he says he wants to defend free speech. So again, we you, we have to recognise that he has put a considerable amount of money where his mouth is on this, and why would, there was no other reason for buying Twitter really is commercially it's lost money eight out of the last ten years. It was going nowhere as a business. So I think he ought to be taken at his word, but my problem is I don't think he realises just how how much of a battle this can be. Because when you're fighting free speech, you're usually fighting for somebody to say something that you don't necessarily disagree with. Will Elon Musk fight, for example, to have the likes of Tommy Robinson saying various crazy things online? Would he fight for for a genuine hateful comment to be published on Twitter? Because saying hateful things is perfectly illegal. Of course, we all know that things like porn are perfectly legal, but you don't put them on Twitter. A line is always drawn somewhere. And then, of course, comes the other question. Would he fight them in every jurisdiction? He might just be talking about America. Do we think somebody as big as Elon Musk, worth quarter of a trillion dollars, is going to be that concerned about um, Nadine Dorries and putting her in a place with the online harms bill? It's quite possible he just doesn't really care about Britain and doesn't really put up much of a fight about off the regime which is about to descend on us here. Fraser, I'm sure that... The defenders of the online safety
0: bill would say that uh, the bill is designed just to protect users from harm. Uh, When Katie Balls interviewed Nadine Doris uh, elsewhere in the magazine and for her podcast Women With Balls, she asked her how the Culture Secretary would define uh, a Twitter pylon, a harmful Twitter pylon. Here's what Nadine Doris had to say.
1: So a Twitter pylon on a footballer because he missed a penalty, of racist hatred is applicable. Twitter pile on on me because someone doesn't like the online safety bill doesn't count because that's public debate.
2: Are you satisfied with her distinction? No, I think it's complete nonsense, and I think this is why, which is really terrifies me, what the government's doing. I think they genuinely don't realise the danger of vague regulation. If they say the word, if the word harmful is vague, which it is then that gives huge power to anybody to interpret it. So we've had from Nadine Doris, she was mentioning Jimmy Carr's jokes recently as an example of something that's harmful. Now, if if Silicon Valley thinks that um, off-color jokes by Jimmy Carr are going to be making them falling foul of a censor, then of course they will censor all kinds of humor and jokes and you can see the chill factor, simply because nobody knows where this line is going to be drawn. This is the problem with all of this hate speech and every restriction on free speech that you make. Unless you're very specific about what you say, then you end up with a chill factor sent down all of media. And people might think, oh, the Spectator wouldn't be included in this or my newspaper wouldn't be included in this. Nadine Doris herself would say, oh, don't worry Fraser, our legislation actually protects our friends and the newspapers. But I'm afraid to say the relationship between newspapers and the online world and magazines is far closer now. Look at this podcast we're doing at the moment. As far as I know Apple iTunes, um, which is distributed through, doesn't have censorship bots. But if we put it up on YouTube, it would have to go through YouTube censors. If we were to do a transcript and put it on social media, it would go through their censors. And when we decided during lockdown to start to really critique what the government was saying and doing, commissioning academics to look at these studies and face masks, for example, we knew we were running the risk of falling foul of Facebook censors, which we did. They slapped a label saying false information on one of our articles, Which isn't just a slur against the writers. It marks us down on their system. So spectator content will not be promoted by Facebook now because they've got us down on their list as being somebody who comes up with misinformation. Now, of course, if I was an editor concerned only about our reach, about making money, then I would be saying to you, Will, as features editor, New Lara, as executive editor, I want you guys to not commission things that go too much against the uh, edge because if it's too edgy, we run the risk of being censured and we can't afford to be censured. So that is the chill factor, which I think will end up having an effect on publications.
1: And Fraser, Boris Johnson was a journalist. He was the editor of The Spectator. But obviously if this bill passes, it will be under his watch. What do you think we should make of that?
2: Uh, simply that Boris is of his generation. I I think he genuinely doesn't understand what will happen when he gets out of number 10 and he wants to start to make comments about Muslim women wearing um, niqabs looking like letterboxes. He'll get a bit of a shock, I think, to find himself falling foul of his own legislation. In the six years that the online safety bill has been in gestation, this landscape has changed so much. The relationship between print and digital has changed so much that it really does need as much protection, free speech protection, as print is given. But instead, creating the most ambitious censorship regime the democratic world has ever seen. Then Boris Johnson, first of all, is creating an apparatus that Jeremy Corbyn would absolutely love to get hold of, say if Labour government would ever come into power. An apparatus that could be very easily used against anybody making conservative arguments, but most of all, an apparatus that violates Britain's 300-year tradition of free speech. And that, for a journalist to come Prime Minister, is a rather shameful legacy.
0: Well, Fraser, I find it very hard to believe that Boris Johnson might fall foul of draconian rules that he himself imposed. Uh, But thank you very much for joining us.
1: Next up, if you've been on the Tube recently, you might have spotted a rather startling sign. It's a poster that warns passengers about intrusive staring on public transport, so as to protect women from feeling intimidated on their commute. But who, we ask, will speak up for those who love staring at people on public transport? The answer is Cosmo Landersman, who defends his love of people watching in this week's Spectator. He joins us now, along with Emily Hill, who has also written about this new policy.
0: Cosmo, in the magazine this week, you write about TfL's recent campaign to stop intrusive staring on public transport. What exactly is intrusive staring? That's
3: a very good question. I've been trying to figure that out ever since I heard it. According to TFL, it's anything that makes women feel uncomfortable or has an overt sexual nature. The problem is that one person's, you know, uh, overt staring is another person's curiosity, and that's where the problem arises.
1: And Emily, do you think that men staring intrusively at women is a big problem?
4: Um, no, <laughs> I don't. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, live in London, but nobody stares at anyone. That's the most wonderful thing about living here, is everybody stares at their phone the entire time and there's no human interaction with strangers whatsoever. It, it's really bizarre to me. And the other thing that really gets me about this campaign is, you know, Sadiq Khan and the obscene amount of money he's spending on this stupid advertising I mean, the Bible says thou shall not kill, and the murder rate's still incredibly high under Sadiq Khan. So I don't see how him, you know, spending $400 on telling people not to stare at each other is going to reduce any of Cosmo's weird looks of strangers.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing will stop my weird looks of strangers. No force on Earth can do that. Uh, TFL claimed that they've surveyed people and... uh, that it's a big issue, the staring issue. However, of years of going on these uh, the troops, I've never seen a starer. I've never met a fellow starer at all. People don't stare. Maybe they're not staring at you, Cosme. No, they're not staring at me, but I stare at them. And they, they ignore me, which is very upsetting. And uh, people don't... People don't stare. It's very hard to stare at people. I mean, seriously, you feel embarrassed. It's an awkward thing. It's a kind of a social no-no. So the idea that we have this mass army of staring men, I I, I have a lot of suspicion of that. I
4: think it's actually going to increase staring. That's my pet theory. Because if you're conscious that people might be staring at you, you, you're like looking at them and thinking, are they staring at me? And then, you know, a lot of the time, if you think someone's staring at you and you look at them, they don't look at you. And then when you look away, you think, are they looking at me? I, I just think it's going to be, it's going to be like taxi driver, people just staring at each other in the mirror, going, are you looking at me?
3: Also, also, it has to do with the person that's doing the staring, doesn't it? I mean, if, if you know, Brad Pitt is staring at you, are you going to be really upset? I'd be ecstatic. <laughs> po- Cosmo,
1: tell us, because you say that for the purposes of this piece, you, you went on a research trip on the tube to stare at women. What did you discover?
3: Uh... <laughs> women do not look at men on <laughs> the tube women are looking at their eye f- their, their their phones everybody on the tube looks at their phones you if i had walked naked through the carriage <laughs> nobody would have noticed it's it's amazing People are absorbed on their phones. So how the staring phenomenon works is, is, is straight. I don't get it. It's
4: a, it's a strategy that, that we've all developed in London in order to be Londoners. Because you would go insane if you had to cope with people being in your space the entire time. Because they would be doing all sorts of horrible things. So what you do is you just go into your own little world and just pretend as if no one exists. And um, coming from a small village is actually something that I find very freeing. So I just, I just think the government just needs to butt out of our business at this point. I don't understand why they won't go away and leave us alone.
0: Well, Emily, I mean, I suppose a defender of the TFL campaign would say that the intention is to make women feel safe, that women on public transport, you know, uh, especially late at night perhaps, uh, could get unwanted attention from sex pests and perverts and, and, and so on. Uh, I mean, do you, do you just not buy into that as an argument?
4: I just don't see how a TFL poster campaign is going to help with any of that. I think the thing is is that men know that they're not supposed to stare at you. People, men know that they're not supposed to rape you. They know that they're not supposed to sexually abuse you in any sense. Everybody knows that. Uh, it doesn't stop it happening. And uh, I've got serious concerns about the police after Sarah Everard... And, you know, the idea that you would go running to a police officer to report this sort of thing seems, frankly, ridiculous. I mean, there are these problems, all sorts of horrible, horrible problems, um, and I'm not denying that they are. But I think, you know, saying staring equates to any kind of sex crime is we're getting into pretty worrying territory. You know, the, the, the whole woke silence is violence. And you know, therefore.
3: But isn't the problem isn't isn't staring a very a very loaded term? I mean, you could look at someone with a kind of curiosity. You know, what, you look at people on the on the tube, and you get lost, and you think, well, what's their story? You know, and you you start thinking about, them and you're looking at them. Suddenly, you're a starer. and the assumption is that you're staring. If you're a man, it always has some sort of sexual intention. And I don't think that's true. We men occasionally have curiosity about other things and other people.
1: Do you think, Cosmo, that masks have played a role in this, in that they've kind of focused people on, focused each other on, their eyes? Matthew Paris wrote a column a few months ago where he said he found masks actually quite alluring because
3: you could only see see a person's
0: yeah, some, eyes. Yes, something of the cod piece about them is <laughs> exactly, how he
3: described. Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but I get it <laughs> it's straight away. Yes, yes, I can see that because the eyes. I mean, it cuts down the story to the eyes, and you you know that you've got a limited space to work and de- to
0: develop mm-hmm. with. And Cosmo, do you think the campaign? makes assumptions about men? If a, if a man is staring, again, it, how have you defined staring? But if a man is looking or, or staring, does it make a, a, assumptions about their intentions? Perhaps?
3: Yeah, there, it ties into a narrative about toxic masculinity and men who stare have got nasty things on their minds. Uh, and I am in the piece that I think men often just have simple curiosity about their fellow men. It's, it's looking is the basis of empathy and understanding. And that somehow gets pushed aside because of another narrative about men on tubes are, you know, seedy and kind of nasty and dark. And um, Emily. Which they, by the way, occasionally are. But I'm not, I'm not denying that. But not all the time is what I'm trying to say.
1: And Emily Cosmo says in his piece that he enjoys people watching and and looking at women. Do you enjoy staring at men on the tube? No,
4: no, I don't. I have to say, I have to say, having uh, this defence of staring, because I thought nobody would be so mad as to say it's perfectly all right to go around staring at people. I actually no. I was taught never to look at anyone. Like, they, like i was raised i remember they did this uh they did this psychological experiment at school which we didn't realize until after it was over was a psychological experiment it, was, it shows how pathetic the teaching is at the state school that, that we, this would even be a lesson but anyway these uh girls came into the classroom and they had a massive fight and then they le- and then uh they left and then they gave everybody a questionnaire to see you know what the argument had been about what had happened in this argument and I was the only person who couldn't get any of the answers right about what had been said or what, or what anybody looked like. My mother told me it was incredibly rude to to bother about what anybody else was doing. Don't look at them. They're not going to look at you. Mind your own business. So, um, yes, that's the only point I disagree with Cosmo on.
1: Cosmo and Emily, thank you very much for joining. And finally, Martha Gill writes in this week's Spectator about the subject of fringes. Why have they come to signify a difficult or traumatic phase in a woman's life, she asks. Martha joins us now along with celebrity hairdresser Christiana Bascu, who's ready to defend the fringe. Martha, in the magazine this week, you write about fringes and, and why they've come to symbolise emotional turbulence. Why do you think the fringe is so maligned? <laughs> well, it always was maligned up until... Uh,
5: really quite recently well in the last sort of hundred years before then it was always seen as a sign that a woman had gone mad or was immoral Um, there are instances of even as late as the flapper bob, of which the fringe was an integral part of parents suing hairdressers for giving their daughters a haircut in which they could never get married but then it sort of became quite sexy with Jane Birkin and, and Kate Moss but now we see around 2018 I think there was a number of things that happened that have all conspired to make the fringe unacceptable again in the terms of it. it looks like you're having a mental breakdown. But in part I think it might be a backlash against the Manic Pixie Dream Girl who was epitomized by Zoe Deschanel, who herself was epitomized by her fringe. Then it's just, it's a, it's the kind of haircut which makes it very easy to portray as somebody having a mental breakdown on screen. So in Girls, Hannah Horvath had a mental breakdown and in the process of that cut her own fringe very badly. It ended up looking like she was a middle ages monk and 30 Rock, Liz Lemon, gave herself a fringe at one point and also some very. it went along with a, a day in which she got some eye surgery which made her cry out of her mouth rather than her eyes. They were seen as part of the same decision. Anyway, so all that accumulated I think and built up to turn the fringe into a sign of, of, of something very wrong that can't necessarily be cured with a pair of scissors. Uh,
0: Cristiano, do you think Martha's being too harsh on fringes here? Is it unfair of her to so say that they've they become unfair. a sign um, or something?
6: I, I, I for for I understand a point that where she from, but free fringe is is a complete. I mean, it's change the way like the like Francois D like Lily Bardot, make the French look sexy. Not they were cut perfectly. The French chansonnier have all these French, and then it's come from Charlie's Angels and the fringe with the top model come up, but then I think if, is they. Fringe become fashionable. Where or you do Botox or you do fringe.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
6: so then the last twenty years, the point is, if you are over thirty, you decide to have a fringe or Botox, mm-hmm. and a lot of people have a Botox. But for the youth now, is a is just remind the sixties, and again like Bardot with this beautiful fringe. All the Victoria's Secret models, all these soft hair is it perfectly but yes i totally understand it was a time where you remember all the old film the 1950s film woman dressed up with a white shirt and a completely mad fringe is it two different way to describe fringe yes
0: and do you if someone came into your to, to your establishment and asked to have a fringe haircut and and you thought that it just would not suit them at all would you feel it's your duty to to say that it that it doesn't suit
6: you yeah, totally them? I will totally will my name my you know we are very big salon and my name is kind of well known I don't want people to have the wrong haircut because I think fringe like haircut in general is a question of frame something for your face. You don't frame Mona Lisa paint with a awful frame. You find the right frame. And I believe haircut is a frame for the face. If it doesn't suit you, you fringe. No, I don't do it. How do you How do you know if it's going to suit you or not? Because you you study the face. You one thing's in rich awards we do is, is a, a big consultation. You sit down with the clients front of the face in front of the mirror, and you study every little part of the face. And first of all, is even like social. You ask about the social life of the client, if you have children, if you have children, you never cut the fringe because they're gonna drive you crazy after one week. If you are busy doctor, you have to work with an operated fringe is gonna be annoyed. So you go going through a lot of detail. It's not just let's cut the fringe. It was about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, like with Kate Moss, a lot of people used to come. I want Kate Moss, look. Yeah, but you are not Kate Moss. So I think <laughs> if you are very, established
0: adversary. you can say that and uh martha i think i have to ask have you have you ever been tempted to have a fringe
5: yeah i mean my piece is informed by a lot of experience i've cut my own fringe in the past it was <laughs> not a success <laughs> but i think this is a universal experience among womankind i Absolutely. think almost everyone has cut a fringe and it's never been in a state of uh, sort of uh, when you're on an even keel. <laughs> <That's very true. laughs> anyway, yes, I do remember actually going to a hairdresser's and getting a fringe once, and coming out and and crying about my
2: fringe. <laughs> <laughs>
5: totally, it just takes. It's just so dramatic. There's just so much potential for it to go wrong, and it just takes so long to get back to where you were with your haircut. So there are three factors that make it a very big decision, I think, in
1: anyone's life. Cristiano, one of the questions that Martha poses in her pieces is whether there's a male equivalent of a fringe, something very dramatic that a man can do. Is there something that you can think of that a man can do to his hair or look that is as dramatic as a really. fringe?
6: For men, no, because you know what? Actually, for men, it was his opposite. Women need free, and they go short, they need the time to grow it. Men, if you want, like the, it was a sweep bangs, like a, the American call, like Justin Bieber. You need grow grow that. So the, I think that, that the crazy haircut for men is a buzz cut. You shave completely. But not really a crazy haircut for men, no.
0: Well, Martha and Cristiano, thank you very much indeed for coming on. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.